0: Hi, folks. This is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 12th, 2019. This is episode 2488 of the Survival Podcast. And here's what we got going on today it's Monday. That means it is time for a listener feedback show. This is where you send me email. You send that email to the email address. It's probably the most public email on planet Earth. Jack at the com. Make sure the anacronym, initials, whatever you want to call it, TSPC are in the subject line. And sooner or later, I will get it out of the uh, junk mailbox. I just ran a TSPC filter search. Um, guess I've not been on it heavily lately. There was stuff in there from three weeks ago. It wasn't a lot. Uh, most of you folks have made the whitelist by now. But it turns out some people who have emailed me back and forth a million times because they were never blocked. I never whitelisted them. And occasionally somebody picks a word or a phrase that ends up with it going into the junk mail list. But if you use that phrase in their TSPC in the subject, I will get back to you sooner or later. Then tell me what the deal is like. Hey, I have a question, and it is bottom line up front. Tell me the question, or I have a point, and the point is bottom line up front. Or I'm talking about a link, and here's my point, and then a link. And then give me any details you want after that, and it'll be a lot more likely to get on the air. Here's what we got today. We got a ton of stuff. Um, I have a question came off of MeWe We uh, Monday chat today. What would you do if you ended up in an active shooter situation? And you might think the answer is really different based on whether or not you're armed. And the answer is different and the same. It's the same but different, man. In the name, in the words of Tommy Chong. Uh, and then a lesson for that one, how gun owners saved a fellow shooter during an accident at an event. So a guy was at a shooting competition or shooting event, something like that, and shot himself in the leg. And uh, there's a big lesson in that. Uh, next, I got a question on doggy doors in regards to security, energy efficiency, all kinds of stuff like that. Then I got some feedback on kayak fishing, basically feedback on feedback, so... I had a question last week on kayak fishing, gave an answer, got some feedback on the feedback. So we'll feedback the feedback. Uh, next up, um, I have probably seen dozens, maybe hundreds of examples of memes, is I guess what they're called on the Internet, where you have a picture and a phrase. I tend to make a few of those from time to time. It's something you know. Uh, with some quote and then some you know, patriotic picture, uh, whether it be of the man himself or of something like an eagle or a flag, with either in the thing itself or nearby somewhere stating the wisdom of Reagan or the wisdom of Ronald Reagan, one version or the other of that. Somebody sent me an email, and it was that's what it said, the wisdom of Ronald Reagan, and then there was a picture with a saying on it from Reagan. I'll tell you why the wisdom of Reagan is not always wisdom and how it leads to you know, blind obedience and how that leads to actually terrible things in our society today. Uh, then I got a question on duck fat and sausage making. And then I got another question, or another little article sent to me about the death nails being driven into the educational system's coffin. Turns out about half of young people today say college is irrelevant in one way or another. There's actually multiple ways that they say that, but it's beginning. The end is at the beginning. And then I got a question on how vision issues can affect your performance as a shooter with optics and other sights on a weapon. It's not, you know, people always say, well, because of my old eyes, now I need a scope. Dude, don't say that crap. Just say you want a scope. No one's going to judge you for having a friggin' scope. It's one of the biggest, it's probably the, the... Other than guns, like if you go to the gun industry and see what people spend the most money on, it's probably optics, maybe ammo. So guns, optics, and ammo are probably your three biggest things people spend money on. People love scopes and red dots. Nothing wrong with that, but sometimes actually people can have issues using a red dot or a scope and actually shoot better with iron sights and vice versa. It all depends, and we'll talk about that today uh, along with all these other things. Before we get into it, Let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Ready Made Resources. ReadyMadeResources dot com. Where you can get at Ready Made Resources. See, the company to say what they do and do what they say. You're going to get all the resources you need, ready made, ready to go. Point click and buy on their website. It's like a Walmart. It's like an online Walmart for your prepping needs. Everything, food storage, storable food, long term storage food. Uh, pressure cookers, uh, things to do your own solar and wind projects, turnkey systems like that, the tactical, the practical, guns to gardens, everything in between. You find it all, you know where, readymaderesources.com. Next up today, an organization that I've been supporting for almost as long as TSP has existed. That's 11 years now, the Free State Project. Um, I love everything about the Free State Project. If I were a single man, uh, honest to God, I probably would be living in New Hampshire right now, which is where the Free State Project is headquartered. This all started a long time ago when a a young man proposed in a thesis that in a republic like the United States of America, conceivably people that were liberty-minded could all pick one state within the Union and move there. Use the freedom of movement in a republic and drag that state to being the freest state in the Union. All 50 states were considered. New Hampshire was chosen for a variety of reasons, and the Free State Project was born. If you want to learn more about the Free State Project, get on over to fsp.org and check it out. And One of the things I like to do with my sponsors, instead of saying the same thing every time, is give you something different to do uh, each time that we mention them. So What I would suggest you maybe do today... If you've ever wondered why, of all places, New Hampshire was chosen, go to Free State Project's website today, again, fsp.org, and on the menu you'll see one that says NH Advantage. Click on that. Read through it and see the logic as to why they chose New Hampshire. It really does make a lot of sense. It's a beautiful state. I love New Hampshire. There was actually a time in my life I really considered moving there. My life would be dramatically different if I did. It was right after I got out of the Army. New Hampshire's where I ended my Appalachian Trail uh, section hike, where I decided I'd gone far enough and wanted to come home. And I spent a few days in the White Mountains waiting for my ride to come get me, because I wasn't about to walk all the way back to Pennsylvania. And... um North Conway kind of got my soul a little bit. If you check out New Hampshire and you check out what FSP is doing, you might just find yourself on a walk that leads you toward greater liberty. Check them out today. Again, fsp.org. All right, with that, let's go ahead and and, and dig into this today. I want to remind you again, though, we're really close to episode 2500. And if you would like to be on the air for episode 2500, just call the jerk line. That's 877-644-1345. 877-644-1345 877-644-1345 uh, And leave a message Talking about how your life's a little bit better uh, Because of TSP And our communities and subcommunities. Or, uh, Or I should say, and if you will Call me a jerk when you do it If you don't really know what that means, you don't have to But most of you do by now Anyway, with that, let's dig into it. So I was on MeWe today in the MeWe chat I had to defer it about 30 minutes late I got really behind today That's part of why the show's out so late today but one of the people in the MeWe chat said, "What should you do to be self-reliant if you end up in the middle of an active shooter situation, uh, rather than just kind of one of the sheep?" And I thought, with all of the talk about these shootings lately, it would really be a good time to revisit this topic. This is certainly we've ta- something we've talked about before. First, I want I do want to kind of put this in context for people. Um, every year, over 30,000 people die on our roads in car accidents. And most of you will go through your life and never be in a serious car accident. That doesn't mean that you won't be in a car accident. When I say that, I mean where someone is seriously injured or killed. Okay, and So there's a, a huge number of that. The, the total number of people shot in mass shootings is much, much lower. So I think one of the first things we have to do when we start looking at these mass shootings and, and understanding what the, how they inflate the numbers and if there's you know, more than four people involved, it's a mass shooting. And that's not, but that's not what anybody means when they say it, except when they're citing statistics in order to get you to give up your gun rights. Uh, when we talk about actual mass shootings, like the things that recently happened in Ohio and Texas, uh, we're talking about a guy who goes into a crowd and just starts shooting a bunch of people for whatever reason. And a lot of people want to make a big deal about the reasons. The reasons are irrelevant if you're the one being shot at. I promise you, even though in your head somewhere you might think, why is this happening or whatever, what you really are thinking about is how to survive and how to help others. So the reason doesn't matter as it pertains to the question, what do we do? And But before we start to prepare for it, we have to get into our head. Just because they hype the shit out of it when it happens, doesn't mean that the probability is that high anyway that we'll ever experience it. But we prepare for the worst-case scenario, and that's certainly a day that would qualify as a worst-case scenario. So what I said in the intro was you may think that this has a great deal of difference if you're armed or if you're not armed, and it does and it doesn't because, as always, it depends. So let's start off with what should you do? What is the, the generally accepted advice is actually pretty good advice in the scenario uh, where let's say you're in an office building and some disgruntled asshole comes in and starts popping people. The, 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 the phrase that's used to train people in how to think in this situation is run, hide, fight. Okay, And what that means is if you're unarmed, obviously running headlong at a guy with, a, with a, you know, an AR blasting away is probably not a good idea. Now, again, everything's subjective. Let's say the guy comes in and starts shooting. He doesn't notice that when he pulls the gun and starts shooting people, you're standing directly behind him, and you're in a position to take him down, and you have the ability to do it. Well, obviously, then fight first, right? And that's where the big it depends comes in this. So if we were in that scenario, we hear shots, we know something's going on, the first thing we do is get the hell off the X. Get out of the, get out of the fire zone. Or move away from the X if you're not on it. Hide. Okay, so that means put something between you and the shooter, and then in the last case is fight. Now I think that we need to understand something about hide. I think there's something implied about hide. If you can get away, you have effectively hidden very, very well. So if somebody's shooting up a school, I, I, I mean, my my kid, I, you know, if he was still in school, I would tell him if you can get out a window, if you can get out, if you can get out and run away from do that, get out. Right, So getting out falls under hide. But if you can't get out, so now you hide. So now you're unarmed. I don't know, you're in a filing cabinet room or something, and a guy is going around opening doors, shooting doorknobs and locks to get in if you've locked it, whatever, and he's going to come through that door. The reason you fight at at that point is because you don't have an alternative. You can sit there and cower and die. Your best chance of surviving, even though it might be low, unarmed against armed, is to fight back. And at the same time, you're organizing those with you. What can be improvised as a weapon? How can we, how can we do this in a way that maximizes our chances? Who's the guy with the best hands to take and strength to take the guy down? What can people that are not as strong still do? And if somebody can't do anything, at least then you need to shut up. You need to be quiet, right? So this is how you would think without a gun. So how, how, why doesn't that really change if you have a gun? Okay, I have a gun. I'm at a place. It's a shopping mall. i am probably more likely to be dead than at a shopping mall. It's a shopping mall, it's a concert, it's a parking lot, it's an office, and I got a gun on me. Bang, bang, bang. Okay, I at that point, I guarantee you, no matter how much you train, you're disoriented. You don't know what's going on. Did a car just backfire? Did somebody did somebody throw fireworks? Is somebody actually shooting? Was there an altercation, and did somebody just whack a bad guy? Did the police just shoot somebody? You know that happens quite a bit more than mass shootings do, right? So there's going to be a lag of what happened, and as soon as that instinct kicks in, it's important to try to identify the source and what is the so the source and where it is, the location and the source of the commotion. How are people moving, and how do I move? so that if I'm going to be in a line of fire next, I get off the X, and the first rule off the X is take cover. See, if I said run, hide, fight, you're like, but you have a gun. But if I said get off the X, take cover, return fire, you'd say, well, that makes perfect sense. Run, hide, fight. What the hell's the difference? You're using cover and concealment, or cover or concealment, depending on what you have available to you. Now, how does it... See... People are going to butt. Well, yeah, butts are always a part of its it depends. I'm in a I'm in a, in a, a bar, let's say, and I'm armed because I'm not drinking. I don't drink and carry a gun. I don't do that. Guy walks in starts shooting people like Pulse nightclub. Not that I'd be in that kind of nightclub, but I'm in a, you know, a, a bar. If the, the scenario plays out the way I described it the first time, I can't really tell where it's coming from. I can't really tell what it is. I don't really know what's going on yet. And I just pull a gun and start pointing it around. Somebody else pulls a gun looking for it. There's a guy with a gun. They're going to shoot me. So I got to move and assess. But let's say, let's say for some reason the guy walks in the door, walks right past me. I notice he's got a gun. He puts it up and starts shooting at people. I've got a clean line of sight. Well, now I'm going to immediately draw and shoot. I'm going to skip the running and the hiding or to get off the X and take cover. But I'm probably also gonna, as I draw, I'm probably gonna go, I'm gonna lower my stature in some way. It all depends on the situation. But that's what has to actually be drilled in your head. Run, hide, fight. Always. With the exceptions being, the opportunity is either there or not there to alter. So what I mean is, if, if I'm in a situation where there's nowhere for me to move, because I got people on both sides of me it's really crowded. A guy shooting into a crowd, he's at a close distance. I can't really hide. I can't really take cover. I can go low and try to take the guy down. I can go low and try to draw and get a clear shot. I mean, I got to do something in that situation. So that's what well, I don't have the opportunity or the opportunity to fight is so good that it's better to execute that than to get off the X and take cover. Again, the guy's in front of you. I'm standing behind him. He can't see me. He pulls a gun out start shooting people. I'm going to shoot him in the back of the head. I, I mean, just no, there's going to be guys nice, stop, drop the gun. No, you're already shooting. Bang. And, and and that has to be the mindset. You also do have to understand something, those of you that are armed citizens. I think people have this belief that it's like your duty to engage somebody in a situation. Again, we're back to it depends. How is this person armed? What type of position have they taken up? Are they walking around like an idiot just shooting people? Or are they wearing body armor and, and behind heavy concealment with optics and 100 yards away from you and you have your Glock? You may be able to in some way assist, but at that point, you may be better off aiding injured and getting people out, calling 911, directing law enforcement at that point. It always depends. And the answer to what do I do is you don't know, and you'll never know until the situation happens, God forbid, and you're in the middle of it. But what you have to train yourself to do is not to eliminate the lag between the incidents occurring and you taking action because you're not going to eliminate it. You're not going to eliminate I don't care how many drills you do. I don't care how many trainings you go to where you, you drill this stuff, where they actually do it with like airsoft guns and stuff like that. I think it's all great, and I think it's all useful. But if we go to a training and they say something's going to happen, you know something's going to happen. you got to think about this. You're out, you're minding your own business. You're thinking about... The fact that your boss is pissed off at you, you got a report due, your kid got a D on a test, your other kid's doing really good in school, but they're miserable because people are picking on them. You had a fight with your wife. Now you're picking up milk at the store because she didn't get it when she went to the grocery store, but somehow it's your fault. And bang, 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 bang! That's reality. You can't drill that. You can't drill that. You can drill basically active metaphors for it. But you can't really drill that because you can't ever really be in a situation of totally not expecting anything to happen. And then things go down. And this is where law enforcement has an advantage in these situations. They can train for the scenario. Is it 100% real? No. But they can train to scenarios, and whenever they go in, they're going in with a certain amount of knowledge. There's already been a shot fired. This is what's going on. Usually there's intel coming in. There's some idea of what's going on, and they're working in teams. You're by yourself. Your fellow armed citizen is as much a potential helper to you as a threat to you. This is reality. This is reality, because I want you to think about this. Bang, 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 bang. People start screaming, bang, bang, bang. People start screaming again. Everybody's getting down. You look around. There's a guy holding a gun looking all over the place with his gun drawn. You have a gun too. What do you think? Do you know that's the shooter? Do you know he's a shooter? Or is he doing what you're doing? You see what I'm saying? This is this is the, the harsh reality. Nobody wants to talk about this. On our side, on on, on the pro-gun side, as though if there's just like a person with a gun, they're like a unicorn, and if the guy shows up with with an AK rocking and rolling, some guy's going to pull out his 32 mouse gun and pop the guy in the head once he's dead and it's over. It actually can happen, but it ain't likely. Now, up till now, we have not yet had a case that I'm aware of any of these situations where armed citizens responded in some way of friendly fire. But it's always a possibility. So if you're armed, you have to be thinking that way as well. And there's things we can do with that. Like once the shooting stops, start saying somebody call 911. Bad guys don't call 911. Bad guys don't tell other people to call 911. Right? And the biggest thing you have to understand is just because you think you're out of the area of danger doesn't mean you are. We we have been really lucky so far. Did even in... The mass shooter situations with more than one person, like Columbine, you had two people walking around together shooting people. We have not yet had a coordinated attack with something like interlocking fields of fire where one shooter shoots and moves people because you can be very predictive about what will happen if you start shooting people. Even if not everybody, there's going to be a group that's going to move this way. And what could be done by two or three people, is is just unbelievable. It's 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 something you don't even want to think about. But it could always be the case. So you need to keep moving. If you're getting away and you're getting people away, you need to keep getting people away. And all you can do with this is a mindset. That's all you can do. Be well prepared. Have the EDC that you carry. And above all, I think the other thing that we need to be prepared to do is to help render medical aid. And I wanted to move on to the next topic because it ties right back into this. Sometimes these things just come together like this. So um, I received an email uh, that I thought was uh, really thoughtful. Bill sent me this, and it's a link to a very brief article and a forum post from Gulf Coast gulfcoastgunforum.com. I have links to both of the article and the, the thing. Uh, the forum post, but it says a guy shot himself in a leg at a local gun club while participating in an organized event. Other participants had medical gear and training to take immediate action. Uh, I saw the story linked below and thought you might be interested. And this this again from Bill. Bill, thank you for sending me this. This is actually completely germane to the subject and you might think it's totally different. So this gun club had something going on like, yeah, they were shooting uh, metal targets or who knows what. And a guy managed to shoot himself in the leg. And it was a fairly serious wound. It wasn't a graze or something like that. This was a a deep wound in the leg, lots of bleeding, uh, lots of gun enthusiasts there, and including lots of people that have taken on the concept of saving lives as important as taking them, if not more so. So they had things like a tourniquet, and immediately applied a tourniquet to this guy's leg. They got 911 on the phone immediately. There were two deputies on duty. Uh, They were there for the event. Uh, that had been hired. You know where the cops work basically private, and they get paid contract to do so. But they're there in uniform, uh, and the organization self hired them, and they they assisted uh, with aid. But this was kind of an off the off the road type of gun gun club. So they had people lined up directing EMS in. So they spread everybody out waiting on EMS, and as the EMS came, they gave them hand signals of where to go, coordinated, got the guy there, got him evac. Guy, the guy turned out to be okay. Serious condition, but not life-threatening. Uh, a textbook. Well, this is what you do know if you're ever involved with a mass shooting. Even if you don't get shot, and even if you don't have any opportunity to return fire or fight or anything like that, you're going to be around people that are hurt really bad. And it may be that you can save a life. Because I want you to think about this. Why would you shoot... Another person. Why would you take a man's life? What would make you willing to say, in this situation, this guy's got to go, assuming that it's not self-defense, that he's shooting other You have a chance to run away. He makes that mistake. He comes in because you're not an idiot walking around doing open carry in a ball. right? could be an activist, so he doesn't see you with a gun and shoot you first. He walks right past you. He ends up on you know an angle where you just got a perfect shot, Start shooting people. Why would you shoot him? And you'd say to stop him. Of course, right? Well, why? Because he's killing people. So what you're saying is the reason that you would shoot him is to save the lives of other people. Right? I mean, that's what you're saying. You're not defending yourself. You're defending others. So your goal is to save lives. Does it matter if you save a life because you shot somebody that was going to kill somebody else or because you were smart enough to see a guy bleeding in his leg, stick your hand in a wound, find an artery, and and clamp down on it with your thumb and forefinger, even if you don't have gear, until EMS gets there? Does it matter? Is the life of the person who was going to be shot and wasn't any more valuable than the life of the person who was shot whose life you saved? So I think that we need to be investing in ourselves with knowledge and have the things on our person, if we can, to save lives because it also doesn't matter if you save somebody's life because they had a severe wound and you kept them alive long enough for higher level medical care to get there because they were shot or because they were in a car accident. Does it really matter? And the answer is no, it doesn't really matter. It might matter from an emotional standpoint. It might matter from how much news coverage it gets. But when it comes down to the basic concept of saving someone's life, then no, it doesn't matter at all. So I I think it was time for that discussion. I'm glad Ray asked that. But if you want like a magic answer to it, I don't have one. And no one else does either. Anybody says they do, they're full of crap. Let's take another one. Next one's from Michael. Michael says, how do you feel about doggy doors? Do you have any concerns about security? How are they from an energy efficiency standpoint? Do you recommend using them or not, Michael? Um, So let's think about this. I have never put in an actual doggy door. What I've put in are kitty doors, and I find kitty doors to be a much lower security risk than a doggy door depending on how big your dog is. So my largest dog is 150 pounds, and I'm pretty sure that even a fairly fat guy could get through any door that dog could get through. Uh, My smallest dog is about 65 pounds, and I think that she could get through some doors that most full-size adults, not all, but most adults, uh, would end up at best stuck in, and they could sit there while the dog eats their face. Um, so, again, it's, it's back to it depends. Energy efficiency I have real concerns with. You're talking about gaps. Even if you've got a good closing door, you know, usually you're talking about either a rubber or a plastic that's rather thin compared to the insulation level of a door. So even if it seals perfectly, which they never seal 100% perfectly, you still have an energy loss. So you're, you're sacrificing energy efficiency for convenience. Now, let me tell you how I've used these. Uh, right now, for instance, um, I have no real need of a kitty door, but I do have one because we used to have an indoor kitty, and it still works every once in a while. Like It's 107 degrees in this t- today, so we'll bring the outdoor cats in often when it's really, really hot or really, really cold, and we'll put some food and water and a, a litter box in the... Our, we call it our pantry. It's our laundry room, pantry, et cetera. It's a fairly large room. Um, and, of course, with kitty food in there, if you have doggies, which we do, what will the doggies do to the kitty food? They don't see a difference, so they'll eat all the cat food. And occasionally Max goes into the cat box for what we refer to as cat biscuits, uh, which is a very disgusting thought, and so we don't want that either. So when the cats are in, the cat's infrastructure is in, we put all their stuff in the pantry, We'll close the pantry door, and we have a kitty door. This doesn't go outside. It goes to a different room in the house. Unless it lets the cats go back and forth. Now, that door has a feature you might want to know about um, that would be effective on animals to a degree, but not people. And that is you can lock it, and it's just plastic little tumblers that turn, where it won't open either direction, or you can make it unidirectional. You can make it open one way or the other, but not both. And what that does is if you're willing to allow the animal out, but if the animal chooses to leave, you don't want it to come back in, you can set it up to do that. Let me tell you how well that works on cats. It works really good for about two or three days. It doesn't take a cat long to figure out if you do that. If I stick my little paw in here and pull, I can pull it and get out, and they'll do that. So I don't even think that feature really works well. If I was going to do it, On an exterior. Oh, let me give you the other way I've used it. And I think this is really a great way for a lot of people that have a garage that have indoor, outdoor cats and have a garage door opener. So we would set our garage door opener so that when it came down, it left a little gap under the garage door. This is something a person couldn't get through. And yeah, there's ways people can pop garage doors and all, but you can do that whether you get that under there or not. That's actually much easier to do from the above. So we would set that garage door so when it came down, it would leave about uh, you know, an 8-inch gap so the cat could slide in and out. Then we put a, a cat door on the door that went from the house into the garage. This allowed the cat to come and go as he pleased and not allow the dogs to do the same. They couldn't either get through the cat door or under the garage door. So that's another way that this works. There are dog doors now that have an RFID chip built into them with a lock. And when your pup walks up to the door, he has on his collar another chip. And those two chips talk to each other, chip, chip, and the door will now open and the doggy can go through, and this prevents unwanted doggies and hopefully unwanted people from getting in your house. However, I've never seen a dog door that if it's big enough for me to fit through, no matter how well it locks, I couldn't kick the shit out of it two or three seconds and get into your house. If you were going to do it at all, I would suggest a back door so it's not visible to two-legged rats. And then it's probably not that big a risk, and I'll tell you why. If I want to get in your house, I'm getting in your house. I'm just I'm going to get in your house. Like I think if you have a great big giant advertisement, you know German Shepherd door on the front door of your house, you're saying hello. Please break in my house and steal my stuff. But if one exists somewhere that could be found, if somebody's like, you know, trying to find a way in, the person that's trying to find a way in, it's probably going to find a way in before they even find it. And I know that might sound a little bit lackadaisical and a little bit like not being worried enough. And I don't know that I would ever do it, but I wouldn't let that probably pro- prohibit me from doing it if I really would benefit from it being done. You know, right now I kind of wish we had one because Max is getting older. He's got—we're calling it dog timers, like Alzheimer's, but it's for dogs, dog Alzheimer's disease. Um, and he's he's pooping at night sometimes in the house and like all over the house. So I mean, if he could get out, that'd be great. Probably wouldn't know to use the damn thing, and is is delirious state, though, um, and we've come up with some other ways to try to make it to where he can't get away with doing it and we wake up and he goes out for the night, um, but I, I do see it as never being perfect, and I, I kind of feel like there is a place for some sort of a dog door that's a better mousetrap version of the current all the current dog doors. But if I was going to do it at all, I would go with dogs, anything big enough for humans to get in and out, and other animals to get in and out, uh, with the chip and the collar that communicates with the door that controls lock because at least that will keep possums and raccoons and coyotes and skunks and God knows what else out of your house. Uh, if anybody has any real experience with these, and good, bad, indifferent, I'd love to hear about it. But again, for me, personal use has always been kitty doors, to get kitties from one part of the house to another, Uh, that we did not want dogs going there. Um, On kayak fishing, I got a little bit more feedback on that. Like I said, feedback on the feedback. And um, here was one, and most of it came on the blog in the comments, which is cool. Um, Mark Dube said, I do almost all my fishing out of a kayak or a canoe. For solo fishing, I use a two-person sit-in kayak that's a very entry-level plastic yak. It works great for solo fishing. Um for space reasons, I wouldn't go with two people in it um, for fishing, but I like having the extra space for gear. I keep it simple. I put a five-gallon bucket in the front seat to hold things and fish. For an anchor, I use scrap steel with a rope being coiled uh, between my legs and in the front seat. So I I, it, I, I was actually kind of thinking that way um, when... I was talking about this that like you know some of those two person kayaks might be really great for a one person kayak with fishing because as I said, um, no no one ever said gee I wish this boat was smaller unless they were backing it into a tight space or something like that. Once you're in a boat, um, bigger is almost always better. Uh, Jacob said, Headwaters Kayak Shop on YouTube has a very informative channel on selecting fishing kayaks. He even shows you a big box store options. And if you live in Lodi, California area, he will even put you on the water to test out different kayaks. So if you're in Cali, you can go there or you can check out uh, the YouTube channel. Again, it's called Headwaters Kayak Shop. That comes in from Jacob, and I will definitely put a link to that YouTube channel in the show notes. And lastly, T, and that's the name given is just a big capital T, says, I know from personal experience that kayak fishing can be very addicting. First off, it's just plain fun. Jack, hit on a few of the other benefits, cost availability to get in small water. I'd add ease of transport, not needing a boat ramp, less likely to spook fish, low maintenance and more. I have four yaks right now, and I would say the bigger isn't always better. Smaller is more maneuverable, usually less complicated, less expensive, and generally lighter. Makes a big difference when you're trying to load it onto a roof rack alone. Longer yaks, though, generally track better and are faster, which are less work on the water. Sit-on-top is definitely preferred for fishing as opposed to sit-in. Uh, 300 to 600 won't get you much at all. Uh, maybe. I guess it depends on what you want. I've seen a lot of really nice kayaks available around here, brand new, in the store, in that price range. That's why I used it. But anyway... Uh, there are many dedicated yaks going for $3,000 or more before adding any accessories. In many, So it's $3,000 or more before you add, add accessories. In many cases, you can get a used boat and a motor for less. $3,000 is pushing it for a decent boat, motor, and trailer, but yeah, you can. Um, those $1,500 decent John boats are out there. They're just hard to find. They're not hard to find. I'll tell you what the thing with those are. They they sell like that. Like somebody puts one on a forum or Craigslist or whatever you call, it's gone. Um, there are many good forms to learn from. I'd look around to see if there are any kayak fishing tournaments in the area. Uh, there are getting to be more and more of those, and one can learn a lot hanging around for the day. I suggest starting off simple and adding accessories as you see the need. And sometimes it's nice to just strip off all the electronics, the extra tackle, etc. grab a fly rod, a small box of flies, and go have simple fun. Yeah, I would agree. And the small kayak thing, I thought about that after I did that segment. And I'll give you an example of where a small kayak really has some advantages. I have a buddy uh, that, that does a lot of this around this area, and we have a lot of creeks. There, there's lakes everywhere. you think Texas is desert-like, and, but, I mean, Dallas and, and head east of Dallas, and there's lakes everywhere, big lakes. Well, none of those lakes are, hey, we'll just dig a hole and it'll fill up with water. These are impounded uh, uh, creeks and, and rivers that make up all these lakes. And when you build a lake like that, if inevitably you have a major body of water coming to it, but you also have these minor creeks and tributaries. And some of these creeks and tributaries, that really wouldn't be big enough for kayak fishing. Once that lake's built, they back up several miles or more because of the lake. And now they're all navigable with a kayak. Well, a lot of them have no parks, no service areas, no anything what they do have is sooner or later, a road or a highway, farm-to-market road, a state highway, etc. something crosses them. And then there'll be an overpass, and then you have road easement. And if you have road easement, you have public easement. If you have public easement and you have a navigable waterway, you have, you guessed it, public access. So a lot of these places, you can walk down the bank fairly comfortably and walk up the bank fairly comfortably. But doing it with a kayak might prove difficult. So what's my buddy do? He takes a rope and throws his kayak over the overpass and ties the rope onto the rail and uh, leaves the rope dangling down. Goes down, retrieves the boat, and does his fishing. And then at the end of his fishing trip, carries the gear back up so it's not so heavy, hooks the kayak back up to the rope, and then pulls the boat back up out of the ditch without having to drag it up and down the ditch. Now, there's a lot of kayaks that I could see doing that with really, really easily. But some of these bigger yaks, heavily loaded, etc. cetera, you're not going to do that. You know, I mean, you're trying to hook the truck up to it and not get hit while you're pulling it across. I mean, yeah, it's not really a way to go, but um, I could see come-alongs coming along and helping with this, too, by the way, just saying, or even maybe a winch, right? But if you keep that boat light... It's real easy. Just whip it over and pull it back up. And we're not talking about, you know, hundreds of feet. We're talking, you know, 20-foot, 15-foot drops, in some cases less than that. Just really a lot more convenient. So that would be another reason you might consider a, um, a smaller boat as well in that situation. I, I can definitely see it being addictive, especially depending on the water that you have around you. So I just wanted to add that. And every once in a while I try to do as feedback on the feedback. Uh, so thanks to everybody that participated in that. Any more on that? love to hear more from you guys that actually do it, because um, the smallest boats that I've ever really used are like 14-foot flat-bottom johns. I've never really uh, fished. I've I've been in kayaks a few times. I've never really dedicated fished out of one of them. So this next one, I mentioned the wisdom of Ronald Reagan, and and, and Tom sent me this. And I haven't heard Tom, from Tom back, and I'll tell you what I basically said to Tom in the short version. And we'll expand on a little bit here. And, uh, I'm not beating up on Tom. I'm just beating up on this idea that every time somebody breaks a law, that they're inherently wrong because they broke the law. So what Ronald Reagan once famously said, and I do get the point, and the point is valid in many instances, we must reject the idea that every time a law is broken, society is guilty rather than a lawbreaker. It's time to restore the American precept that every individual is accountable for his actions. Ronald Reagan. Sounds good. Let's talk about this. Let's say Tom is a guy who likes to smoke pot. So Tom decides he's going to get some pot. So Tom gets some pot. And he just so happens to come up with a couple different opportunities to get some pot. Tom ends up with like an ounce and a half, two ounces of pot in his possession. One way or another, Tom runs afoul of the law, and he's found to have in his possession a total of you know over an ounce of Marijuana, the devil's lettuce, oh my God, think of the children. And some overzealous prosecutor decides she doesn't like the cut of Tom's chin, so she prosecutes Tom for intent to distribute rather than simple possession, which would have been a low-level misdemeanor and not completely destroyed Tom's life. Um, Tom is either subject to an incompetent uh, uh Public defender or goes bankrupt hiring somebody to try to defend him, eventually ends up in jail because, you know, the jury doesn't know anything about jury nullification or care about what's right or wrong. They just judge the way they're told to judge by the judge, and all of a sudden Tom is a criminal, even though Tom never sold anybody any drugs, never bothered anybody, never uh, harmed anybody in his life. Well, let's change it to meth. Now, meth is bad, okay? I'll say that flat out. Um, Same type of thing happens with meth. Tom could go to prison for two years or more. Even if he never intended to distribute. Just on having an amount above a certain amount. Even if he intends to distribute. Even if he did distribute. look Look at what we do to people's lives. And... Is there anybody that can show up and say, I went to buy pot or meth or whatever from Tom and he sold me some bad shit? I died, or somebody I know died because it was bad stuff? So, and I I can keep going. Drugs is just an easy layup here. How many people's lives have been totally destroyed by the apparatus of the state? How many have been totally destroyed for victimless crimes? How many reputations have been destroyed? Bank accounts have been eradicated. So the, 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 the precip of what Reagan was saying there is the person who violates the law is not the victim. Society is the victim. And society as a victim has been used to allow the state to commit some of its greatest atrocities against its own people. I don't believe... That society can be the victim, the people can be the victim of anything but the state. If Tom's smoking pot, selling pot, growing pot, whatever. And he's not stealing from anybody to do that. He's not getting high and coming and taking your TV set or whatever they say people do. Then if Tom is actually has his life disrupted. If there is a victim, it is Tom. And this concept that a law equals right is why we have a lot of the problems we do in the world today. Think of how many things the state can fine or imprison people for where you can't show me a victim. Except the person that's being persecuted by the state or prosecuted. They sound very similar now, don't they? Um, To me... If I were ever on a jury, if you can't show me someone who was harmed by this individual's actions, and that also means not by their own stupidity. Well, I bought meth from Tom, and I took seven times the dose that you're supposed to take, and I ended up in the hospital, and I almost died. Okay, well, you're a meth head. You're an idiot. If you didn't get your meth from Tom, you don't get your meth from somebody. You're no more responsible for... Tom's no more responsible for what happened to you... Then if somebody goes to Dunkin' Donuts every day and shoves down 12 donuts a day and ends up cardiovascular disease, you're the one that ate all the donuts. Unless you can say, here is a person, Tom hit this person, Tom stole from this person, Tom defrauded this person, etc. Then I don't see a crime. I do see a victim. I absolutely see a victim. The person the state is using the full force of the state against. And... It's funny, slowly we are starting to make some progress, especially in the world of cannabis. Like, um, you're not in, unless they get you for intent to distribute or actually distributing or actually selling or delivery of products, you're not totally screwed in Texas anymore until you have like over four ounces of marijuana. You're not, I mean, it's not like you get caught with three ounces of pot, you're, you're, you're hunky dory. But you're probably not having your life completely destroyed, lifetime losing of rights and things like that. You're having a bad day. But I know a person. He was a good guy. I haven't seen him in 20 years. His name was Robbie, though. He did two years of state prison. Why? He had some meth in his pocket. And it was enough, it was just enough, that a prosecutor who wanted to look tough on crime was able to make the case that it was intended to distribute even though it wasn't and this guy went to prison for 2 years he was separated from his children well, right I mean it's separated from the children everybody arrested that has kids is separated from their children that's how prison works he was sent to prison and he has a felony conviction why cuz the prosecutor wanted to look tough cuz he had no money he got a pathetic public defender they told him to take the deal that was offered, even though it was a terrible deal. He did two years in Pampa State Prison in, in, in North Texas. Actually, Northwestern Texas. What good did that do me? What good did that do you? My children need to stay away from drugs. That's your issue and your children's issue. This guy wasn't a threat to your children. What, what good? Who is the victim other than this guy, Robbie, in that situation? So I don't believe that we should always make it out that the criminal is the victim. But I also don't think we should enter the mindset that the criminal can't be a victim. Even when they actually are a criminal under the legal term because they've actually violated the law. And yeah, if you're wondering, my opinion is that does apply a great deal to people that come to this country illegally. My problem with the concept of round them up, lock them up, whatever, is that we created a situation that incentivizes them to come here. The Republicans, for 40 years, when they were in charge, refused to do anything about the companies hiring them. And the Democrats have refused to do anything about the border itself. And then we turn around and we give them, through their children, state benefits. Why would they come here? So we created this situation, and we refused to fix it. And I understand when people say, hey, we should enforce the border. On some levels, I agree. On some levels, I totally disagree. I mean, my solution is simple. Abolish the welfare state, and we can talk. No one wants to do that, though, because think of the children, whining and gnashing of teeth. But anyway, back where we started. Please don't ever think that a person, even one who violated the law, can't really be the only victim in a situation. Because there's too many things that you can do that are illegal today that can cost you your money or your freedom that have no victim. Things like digging a hole without a proper permit on your own land, just as an example. Let's take another one. So here's an interesting one from um, Corey in Austin. He says... Uh, Would duck skin make good fat to grind with venison for sausage? I'm about to process 20 muscovy ducks this weekend. I'm going to part them up rather than freeze the whole bird. I just have not had great success with cooking the whole bird. I'm tired of messing with it. I've also discovered that I can use my instant pot to do sous vide cooking, so I don't need to worry anymore about meat drying out. I don't necessarily need the skin out anymore. I'm at a point where I'm almost thinking about just skinning the ducks, which should easily cut the processing time in half. I really like duck fat, but I really hate pin feathers. If duck, a duck fat rabbit and venison sausage is something you think would work, then I'll put the feathers and I'll pull the feathers and pull all the skins and part out the birds. I doubt it, but if there's any way to render the fat from the ducks without pulling all the feathers, I'd love to hear about that too. Thanks, Corey and Austin. Um, let's separate those. So do I think that duck fat makes a good fat for sausage? And in general, no. Cause you're not gonna use duck skin. You're gonna have to render the fat. Then you're basically dumping a liquid fat into the meat. Might it be a useful addition to some sausages? Sure. Sure. Duck fat's beautiful. And if you can harvest it, you should. And usually you can get it from the skin, and often there's some internal fat that you can harvest as well. When you uh, remove the entrails, you'll find two little lines of fat often in ducks. And for frying or for doing um, uh, confit, it's just beautiful. Potatoes fried in duck fat, is just like everybody should do that at least once. When we make sausage one of the reasons that pork fat is so often used especially back fat is that it's something we can put through a grinder without completely turning into mush especially if we're smart and we par freeze it before we put it through there and that allows us to end up with a really nice mixed product now when it comes to mixing sausage there's actually two ways to do this and you could kind of of sort of do it with some duck fat um the way that most people do, which is where we truly emulsify. And when you emulsify a sausage with its fat, that's when you get the meat's kind of sticky and it comes more, it looks almost more like it's paste like. Then, if you've ever had sausages, especially smoked or cured sausages, where you cut it open and when you look at a cross section, you can see pieces of meat and pieces of fat. You don't want to emulsify that. So you can kind of sort of, okay, do the first one. You could never do the second one with, with, with you know, duck. But there's a reason that almost every sausage that you will find, no matter what it's labeled as, you know, duck sausage, turkey sausage, whatever, almost all of it will contain at least some pork for pork fat because it's just the ideal fat. Beef works too. Um, usually when I cook a brisket, I will trim off the heavy beef fat a thick, not the not the, you know, stuff is more tallow like. Uh, I'll cube that up and freeze it, and I will mix percentages of it into different sausages. Duck fat, I wouldn't do it with. Now rendering without pulling off all the feathers. Um, yeah. Um, I think if all you're going to do is render, that you don't have to worry about every little pin feather and things like that. But I still think you'd have to pluck. If anybody's ever used duck fat in the making of sausage and was pleased with the results, let me know. My feeling is it's such a low, it's such a the viscosity gets, you know, it gets thin really, really easily. And so, given that it's not bound up at any cellular level, it's just a a a liquid fat once rendered. The the first time a a casing ruptures, it's just going to run out of the sausage. It's not going to hold at all. And that's really not what you're looking for in a sausage. I'm not sure on that. That's just my instinct, and it's it's not the route that I would take. Again, everybody should do some twice-fried potatoes and some duck fat at some point in their life. They re- You really should. Uh, enough that I'd say if you can go out and buy some duck fat and uh, just to try it, go to it, because it's really worth doing. Uh, as far as parting the ducks out versus cooking them whole, uh, absolutely. When we think about Duck and chicken, all poultry really, I think, you're, you're almost always better parting out uh, the animal. First of all, more with chickens than ducks, but with chickens you've got dark meat and light meat. They want to be cooked at different temperatures for different times under different methods. But even with a duck, you've got this kind of broad, flat, and with a Muscovy, pretty thick breast that cooks a lot like beef, and then you've got this much tougher leg quarter, and everything else is okay for picking for soup and for making stock. Right. the rest of it there's just not much on a wing uh, the upper wing's got a little bit of meat but not much the mid wing on a duck is really really not got much at all a big male Muscovy, maybe some a female muscovy not much at all so you're between those two major cuts and a breast is really beautiful if it's done like a medium you know where it's, it's, it's red in the middle still the sear and finish in the oven method is just the way to go the thighs and legs, you're gonna to want to cook them a lot longer. So yeah, I, I, I'm all for parting them out. I always part out a duck, even if I buy a duck. It's, it's you know from a market that's already you know, dressed. I always part them out. I always take the excess skin and render the fat, etc. And if you do a lot of ducks, you can render fat over time, and you can end up with a pretty good uh, stash of duck fat. But that's my opinion on that. Um, so next up, a uh, I've been saying for a long time that the modern education system is is about to be eviscerated, that we'll always have school. I I would say in in our lifetime, we will always have schools in the classic sense. There will be universities, et cetera. But the number of people utilizing those is going to drop dramatically, um, and it's going to start at the university level, and it's going to trickle down into high school and, and and. secondary, -secondary, post-secondary, elementary, middle school, all of it is going to be radically transformed as people start taking uh, different options. And I think the growth in homeschooling alone shows that to be the case. I mean, 25 years ago, homeschooling was a very fringe movement. The last number I saw for the total number of children engaged in homeschool in America today is 3.3 million. Um, There's about... 19 million uh, young people will go to college. To kind of put that in perspective, you have over 3 million kids in homeschool. Only 19 million people even in college at this point, down from well over 20 million at its peak, its recent peak, as a lot of people went back to college during the Great Recession or what have you. Um so, we already are primed for it. You can see it starting to happen i 've already covered several universities either shutting down entire wings or you know programs of their campus you know programs so they 're getting rid of all the liberal arts crap or whatever, uh, some selling off buildings, some going out of business, selling the entire campus like here 's a whole college campus. you can buy it been in business since eighteen ninety four but we 're quitting now because Trump sucks or whatever and so i 've already been saying this well. The big thing that's going to hit the colleges, and I've said this for a long time too, is the unwillingness of young people to pay for an education with debt, regardless of how they justify it. It it doesn't even matter how they justify the decision. It's too expensive. My sister can't get a job. Um, It's not worth it. Whatever it is, the, the very fact that they won't do it is a big, big problem for the industry that is selling young people the idea that a college degree is worth many to tens of thousands of dollars because you'll make more money if you go to college. Well, there's a new article out right now, and it, it really shows the shift beginning to occur where young people are starting to say these things and not in small numbers anymore, but in large numbers. Um, The article I have a link for you to has a... uh, 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 This opens up with a story about a young woman who had four choices when she graduated high school. Her four choices were to go to Caltech, UC Berkeley, or Carnegie Mellon University. These are all very high-level schools to go to. Or she could go be a solutions architect at a software company called Avasoft. She chose to go to Avasoft. When you read the whole article, you find out that what happened is very quickly she ended up in India. Now, her name is Malvika, and uh, she may speak Hindi, and maybe that's why she kind of had an upper hand at getting this job. But she, and she was a high-level student. She was a student that was taking advantage of the most advanced computer courses she could take in her high school. But she ended up in India for six months, and now she's in Germany working with a client. She's not even 20 years old yet. She's 19. She's not even a millennial. If you're 19, you're not a millennial. You're part of Generation Z. You're the next generation. I think they finally decided what they are going to uh, call you guys. Now, TD Ameritrade is who did this. And TD Ameritrade, of course, is a financial liars company. Uh, They train people to... You know, get you to invest your money uh, in mutual funds with supposed experts who are just basically putting you in a standard thing for your age bracket with a little bit of adjustment based on your risk tolerance. That's, that's all it really is. But they do have a real interest in demographics. So they surveyed over 3,000 United States teens and adults, including approximately 1,000 Gen Zs, which they're describing as being 15 to 21 years of age. Uh, Gen Z actually goes younger than that, but that's who they asked uh, 1,000 young millennials, and they're describing a young millennial as 22 to 28, so those are fairly young people, and 1,000 parents aged 30 to 60. About one in five Generation Z young and young millennials say they may choose not to go to college. Many others see less conventional paths through education as a good idea. Over 30% of Gen Z and 18% of young millennials said they have considered taking a gap year between high school and college. So let me tell you something about people who take a gap year. The reason that so many people are opposed to a gap year is most people that take a gap year don't go to college. Because they get a taste of the real world and they get a little bit smarter, they get out of the indoctrination, they get out of the mindset of school, they get out of being surrounded by people telling them what to do every day. They start to actually think for themselves. And then unless they're right for college, they don't go, and most people aren't right for college. I'll go out of limb, but I and most is fifty one percent or more. Okay? Uh, 89% of Gen Z, along with 79% of young millennials, have considered an educational path that looks different from a four-year degree. So, pretty much everybody was going to go get a four-year degree ten years ago. At least that was in their whether they did it or not. That's what their mindset was. Now you've got 90% of the kids that are going to college, that are going to either go or not go, in the next ten years. If you're Gen Z, like, no millennials are graduating high school anymore. It's over. You're not the youngest group anymore. The the millennials are out. You understand that. The millennials are not high school students. Some of them are 37 years old now. They're parents in this this thing, older millennials. Gen Z is the future of college, and 89% say... I'm considering something other than a four-year degree. That doesn't mean they're all not going to go to college, but they're at least open to something else. That number was almost the exact opposite 10 years ago for the millennials. Now, parents still think it's really, really important. goes into student loan debt, etc. But the big thing here is that Over half of young Americans, so this is back to people like 30 and under, or I mean 40 and under in the totality of the study here, say that their degree is irrelevant to their work. Half say, yeah, I got a degree, but it has nothing to do with my job. Don't need it for my job. Yet we're holding on to this nostalgia. This is what's what's keeping the, the whole pump primed. The baby boomers were told, go to college, get a good job, and by and large, it worked for them. Gen X was told to do it, and it worked not as good for, for us, but it worked. It worked. We told the millennials to do it. They did it. Now they're telling Gen Z to do it, but it's the, 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 the magic, the hex is wearing off. People are waking up to it. And more and more people are starting to admit even to their kids, yeah, you know, I went to college and it didn't work out. But we still have to see what's holding it together. Well, you know, maybe if I would have went to engineering school or something like that, I want you to have better than me. And this is what they've preyed upon to prop this Ponzi scheme up for so many years. Every parent wants their child to have a better life than they had. They want them to learn from my mistakes and go forth and do more than me. And some people, again, I, I, I do not completely, no people think I do. I don't crap all over the university system. There is There are people who fit it. It's just way too big and way too many people in it that don't belong there. And as you get this to happen, for the first time, since before I was in high school, and I'm an old fart now, okay, for the first time, a significant majority of people that are either hitting graduation or will be hitting graduation in the next five to seven years are starting to say, maybe this isn't the way to go anymore. And on top of it, they're right. Because there's hundreds of opportunities. Whether it's doing what this girl did and being a really great student in high school, getting a lot of knowledge, and then looking for an opportunity right out of high school. I mean, and let's face it, this girl's probably a rock star. Not everybody's going to do this. Or going into the trades that are just screaming, we need people. Or starting a business. There's, you know, my daughter in law has a shopping habit. I told my wife this week, well, when she was telling me about it this weekend, I said, you know, the problem's the solution. She said, you always say that. How could the problem be the solution to someone that doesn't have a lot of money, that spends money they don't have shopping because they like to shop? And to be fair to her, she's not going out and, like, you know, maxing out credit cards on new boats or something like that. She buys little piddly crap. She goes, like, Five Below and stuff like that and buys little crap. And a lot of it never gets used. And then she doesn't even return it when she doesn't use it to get her money back. So, well, she likes to shop. So what if she went shopping at garage sales? and swap meets, and estate sales and stuff like that. And then she found really cool stuff at really great prices, marked it up by twice what she paid for it, started out small, and did it on eBay, and started flipping crap. Because there's plenty of people flipping crap making money now. Well, if she did it for a few months, she'd probably get pretty good at it. And not everybody that does it is going to be successful, but if you want to be, you can so she could then take her shopping habit and turn it into a business. She gets to go shopping. She doesn't really want the stuff. She likes to buy stuff. It makes her feel good. So if you then rechannel that energy, so that's a thing that can be done. Well, we've been able to do that for 15 years now, at least. People have been doing it successfully for more than 15 years now. I think eBay's older than that now. But it can be done. But when I was a kid coming out of high school, that wasn't an option. How many things can you do now that when, that when my generation graduated high school, you couldn't do? You can get in contact with a Chinese company, develop a product, or just take a product that already exists, brand it a certain way, and start dropship selling it. You, it takes some effort, but you can still get on Amazon as a vendor and be doing that. There are people who literally buy Amazon returns from Amazon and put them back on Amazon and make money doing that. There's crazy maniacs that just use a couple hundred dollars worth of recording software and a hundred dollar microphone and build a six figure business with a podcast. Like, so at the same time, they're finally, the young people are finally waking up to the fact that this might not be the way to go. There's more opportunities to do really well for yourself than there have ever been. In the history of mankind. So what does that spell for the higher education system? It spells disaster. The entire system is run on a Ponzi scheme. And the student loan system is run on a Ponzi scheme. You have to keep bringing more people in or the whole thing falls apart. Guess what? It's going to fall apart. It's already in decline. College enrollments are down a million students almost from just a few years ago. It's dropped a million. At the height, it was about 20 million. That's about 19 million. That That's significant. If, if it was 100 million, we were talking about some other country with a billion people, it was 100 million students, and it went down to 99 million, that's 1%. I I, I might have never went to college, but I'm pretty good with numbers. And dropping from 20 million to 19 million, is about 5%. That's a 5% reduction in students while the population has continued to grow and while the universities have continued to grow and while the cost to go to school has grown, but so has the cost of running the schools. This, is a, this I want you to think about any other industry. Any other industry. What happens to the automotive industry if there's a 5% National drop in how many cars are purchased. Ooh, wait a minute. That's, that, see, is it starting to make sense to you? Are you starting to understand what 5% less really is? in something that's a multi trillion dollar industry and all the other industries connected to it. This is, it, it's going to come apart. And it's going it, to it's gonna be one of these things that's, these little things that I've been pointing to. And year after year, as I've been talking about this, and people, when I first started saying this, I heard from a lot of you, you said I was crazy, that this would never happen. And it's another piece, and another piece, it's like a wall, another brick in a wall, but it's another brick out of the wall. To tink, to tink, to tink, to. Well, how long is it before the wall collapses in on itself? How long is it before people start to figure out things like Discover Praxis is a better opportunity? How long is it before, you know, someone looks at the Praxis model and says, I can do that in a different way, and I can do that better. I can do that in a way where maybe it's not even an out-of-pocket expense for students, it's a competition. Like, whoever gets through the first month gets to the second, and whoever gets to the second gets to the third. It doesn't cost you any money to get in the door because I'm going to sell you out the other side of the door. That's going to be a model. 5,000 enter. 1,000 finish or 500 finish. How about that? How about this? You know what the Praxis model is? Real quick for those that have never heard me talk about Praxis. Praxis is a boot camp. It costs students about $11,000 to go to Praxis. The first six months they're in a, a boot camp model. The second six months during an internship that pays minimum $15 an hour, it just so happens to work out that that six months pays about the exact amount of their, their tuition. So effectively, their education is free. It's break-even at the end. And then they get a, as long as they complete it and do everything the way they're supposed to, they get a job at the end of that 12 months, either with the company they intern with or possibly another company. So that's praxis. You pay to play. What if I did this? What if I set up a very similar model of praxis? and said, this is how it works. Every year, we take 5,000 students into the program. By the time you get to the end of your six months, 500 remain. It's competitive. We're not going to apologize for it. We're brutal on you. We're brutal. Our job is to make the people are going to wash out, wash out as quickly as possible. And we're going to end with the top 10%. And it was already competitive to get into the, the, the deal. And then for the next six months, we're going to farm you out into an internship. And we're going to charge you nothing for this. And at the end of that internship, we're going to sell you in a headhunter model to companies. And we're going to guarantee you a job. If our recruiters have to work until they die, you're going to get a job. Now, I go out to IBM... I go out to all these startups like this software firm or whatever and I show them my model and I say first of all 50,000 people a year apply to get in 5,000 get in then 500 get through you have the top 10% these people have completed more as far as to what's valid and they've gone through more than anybody has in four years of college what are they worth to you? do you think I can't make money doing that? especially if i've got some backing to fund it in the interim until the cash flow starts coming out that's just one idea by one crazy redneck duck farmer it's 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 endless what can be done we are still using 1860s technology the modern education system is based on the prussian education system that's over 250 years old now we might use computers and tablets but it's still the same model it's 2019 it's all going to come apart. And it's going to look like a little bit here and a little bit there and chink, chink, chink. And then it's going to happen so fast. I'm like, I don't understand. And they'll be, we have to bail out the universities. We have to bail out the student loan companies. We have to bail everybody out. We're going to bail too. It's going to be just like the bailout of the Great Recession. When they bailed everybody out, people went, where'd all the trillions of dollars go? And when the hole filled the hole up, it's gone. All it did was bring us back to par in a whole new world where things are totally different now. And we just robbed and looted you to pay for it. Watch and see if they don't do the same thing. You can't bail out the universities from this. They're going to fail. They're going to crumble. I would say that 10 to 15 years from now, if half of all universities still exist in significant form in an offline world, that will be the best that industry can expect. And yeah, you could write that down, and I know it's a long timeline, but it's just what the timeline is. But it's gonna get it's going to accelerate and it's gonna get more and more obvious, and then they're gonna talk about how do we save it? How do we save it? Maybe when something starts dying, it doesn't always need to be saved. Sometimes maybe we're better off just putting it to sleep. That's where this industry needs to go. Because we need to stop parasiting our youth. That's all it's become. What started out is a noble effort and a great idea of providing higher education to as many people as possible, has taken the people it was supposed to benefit, and it has turned them into batteries to be harvested and yet another form of the matrix. And that's what it really is. And you guys that are older like me, well, I went to college and it worked for me, and I paid off my loans in six years or five years or three years or whatever, and they are the ones... not nah, Bullshit. They were brainwashed into this shit. They trusted people like us who told them it was the right thing to do. They looked at the example of what we had, and they went to school, and they got a degree, and we told them it didn't matter what they got a degree in, that they just needed a degree. Take the loans. It's all worth doing. We told them that. They believed us. We screwed them. And the next generation, the best thing they can do is learn from that lesson and don't get screwed. If it works for you, go. Know why you're going and know what your ROI is on your investment. If you don't know that, don't go. Here's a quick one at the end on guns. Sean Fermain says, Could an astigmatism cause problems using a red dot or a scope on a rifle? Details I've tried red dot and magnification scopes a few times and always had trouble with them, mostly red dots. I'm quite well with iron sights and haven't bothered much with trying to get them to work well with me, but as I get older, I've grown my collection of firearms. I see how having a rifle with a scope could be beneficial is it something I'm doing wrong or do I need to wear corrective lenses when using a scope? I currently only need glasses when driving and for seeing things at a distance. I look forward to hearing your response. And as always, thank you for everything you do. Sean from Maine. Well, I, do, I mean, it's really hard for me to personally answer that question for your unique needs without being able to see how your rifle's set up, what you're looking at, discuss it with you, et cetera. But let's, let's talk about a few things here in general. Uh, what you are is nearsighted. In other words, that you see things well up close and you don't see them well at a distance. That's me. In one eye. and the other eye, I'm pretty much blinded. So, I do not wear my glasses when I shoot my rifle scoped. And the reason I don't is I'm not looking 150 yards away at a target. I'm looking into a scope that's close to my eyes. And if I put my glasses on and I look through that scope, I do not see well. This is why if you ever are around me and somebody hands me something to read, the first thing I will do is take my glasses off and I can read beautifully. If it's more than a few feet across the room, you'll see me put my glasses back on to read it, to see it, to interpret it. Like if we go to a restaurant where they have the menu up behind, kind of like a diner type where you order your stuff and they give it to you and you take it to your, you know, to your table, uh, or even they bring it to you like a Fuzzy's Tacos or something. If you're not familiar with that, if you're ever in Texas, go to Fuzzy's Taco. Um, you'll see me like my glasses on because I can't read the board at a distance. So the reason, again, that's the case is you're not really looking 100 yards away. You're looking at an image created by the scope that's only the distance of the scope from your eyes. Now, when a lot of times when people go to shooting optics, that are not people who've used optics. They have their eye relief wrong. They have their head position wrong. really don't understand what's going on. And that's something that you kind of have to learn. And it's hard to explain in audio only. But when you, when you look through a scope, you should get the, the fullest field of view when your head position is on the rifle where it belongs for the rifle. And you people shooting ARs, whose nose is not touching the charging handle, go find a Marine or a soldier to teach you how to shoot an AR. Everything else, you're not that quite that far up on the stock. We should have that optic designed. And the way that I do this when I set up a scope, to get that eye relief right where it needs to be, is I will get the rings mounted, and I will get the scope into the rings, and then I will tighten the rings to where the scope... Is you know It doesn't move around on its own, but you could still move it. And I will close my eyes, and I will bring that rifle up to bear, like I'm going to shoot with my eyes closed, and I will open my eyes. And I will look at the scope. And if I don't have a full field of view, I'll move it forward and backward until I do. I will put it down. I will close my eyes again. I will come up to a natural stock fit. I will open my eyes. And when I get a natural fit and a full field of view, I've got the eye relief right. Then I will mark the scope on both sides of the ring so that it doesn't move forward or backward with something like a, uh, a, a metal pencil. Uh, well, I can't think of what you call those things right now, but the ones that they kind of mark in metal. Um, and then I will go through aligning the reticle, et cetera, the way you would normally do. But that way, while you're doing that, if you move it forward or backward, you can tell and you get it back where it belongs. Red dot, Ooh, a red dot is a little different now. A red dot kind of, with no magnification, stands in for an iron sight, but it's weird and it may be difficult or more, and it may be why I don't like them, as, just like a lot of people do like them, because now I'm focused on the dot plus through the, the, the optic to the distance at the far target. With iron sights, if you have a proper sight picture, the sights almost go away. You're focused on the target, and the sights come between you and the target, and you take the shot. And this is a weird thing. Like, I have this vision issue. You put a shotgun in my hands and let me shoot skeet, and I will steal some money from some people that think a one-eyed dude can't shoot. I mean, it's I have no problem at all. Generally, if I shoot 25, uh, 25 clays, I'll shoot anything from a perfect to like a 24 out of 25 most times. And you'd wonder, well, how could somebody with this vision issue, I wear my glasses, I'm focused on the skeet in the distance, I'm bringing the gun between myself and the target, and there's a lot of instinct that goes into shooting a shotgun versus a rifle. Well, if you learn to shoot a shotgun well, and you transition to an iron-sided rifle, you tend to shoot rifle with both the, the, the alignment of the sights being proper and everything, but you're also putting an awful lot of that instinct into shooting, and that instinctive shooting that you use in a shotgun into that rifle. This red dot somewhere in the middle of those, and it may be very difficult for some people with certain vision issues to be able to shoot because now I'm trying to focus on that dot and I'm trying to focus on the distant target at the same time. Well, now I've got an issue. Now I've got an issue because I want my glasses to see that target in the distance, but the dot is not quite clear to me. It's not. It's not precise. it's not it's got fuzziness or whatever up close. And because it's a dot, I'm kind of focused on it more than I would be looking through sights, I guess is the way to, the way to put it. And so I guess it could be an issue. I mean anybody that struggled with this, I'd love to hear your comments on it. My, again, mine is you put um, a rifle in my hand with iron sights on. I'm gonna put my glasses on, I shoot just fine. You give me a scope rifle, I'm probably not shooting with my glasses on. I'm probably taking them off. Uh, up to the point where if I'm sitting in a blind, I'll have my glasses on while I'm watching the field, and if I have a long shot you and know, bring the scope up and all, I'm going to take the glasses off. I can shoot with them on, but I... See much better with them off at that point, because you're you're looking at the image in the scope, which is right there. If that makes sense, I it's really hard to explain this, but yes, I mean the upshot, Sean, is yes, and astigmatism could be causing problems using a red dot. For people that don't want astigmatism, is it's your cornea is not perfect, it's not it's not shaped right, and it will usually create either nearsightedness or farsightedness. And then you've got people like me. Well, how are you blind in one eye? Did you get shot or something? Kicked in the head by a mule or whatever? No. Um, what I had is as a child, and they called this condition lazy eye. That's why if you look at some of my videos, sometimes it looks like, well, "What the hell's wrong with his left eye? I'm blind. I can't see. It. It's like Forrest Whitaker eye it goes wherever the hell it wants to." Well, they weren't real good at catching this when I was a kid. They're much better at catching it now. What they'll do is they take the dominant eye and they put a patch over it for you know six hours a day to force development of the other eye. Well, what's really being developed there isn't the eye. The cornea can't develop better. It is what it is. It's genetics. It's just that's the way that it is. What's happening is when you have an astigmatism in both eyes, and if one of them is dramatically different from the other, so they are very different in the way they affect you, which is very common, your brain won't be able, as it's developing, because when you're born, you do not have a fully developed brain. Even by the time you're five, your brain is still developing. By the time you're 20, your brain is still developing to some degree, forming certain synapses. The other thing that's not fully developed, though, when we're young, is the optic nerves themselves. So the nerves are actually continuing to develop as you're developing better hand-eye coordination, eyesight, etc. So when you're, mind is faced with this conundrum, what it will do is it will just grab your dominant eye and it will really dedicate itself to developing that optic nerve and it will kind of leave the other one behind. So that's why like, surgery won't fix my left eye. Glasses, I can wear a giant, super, giant, thick lens on my left eye and it's only a little bit better than wearing a shitty one. So I don't wear the giant, thick Coke bottle lens anymore. And so that's astigmatism and that's why it can create this situation where you got one really good eye and the other one you really can't see crap out of and the reason I bring that up here at the end is if this is your child and they're young like under three and you figure this out this is the time to act and the patch therapy we've had uh, several children in our family that have used it it does it will they will never really develop their eyesight to the level in the weak eye as the dominant eye but it does work it does help. and causing forcing the brain to use that eye and taking away the dominant eye during those developmental years work, by about five, six, the opportunities, there's some there, but it's not much. It's not much. They caught it for me when I was about six, and I wore patches here and there whenever nobody was looking so I didn't get made fun of as a kid. It just really didn't do anything. Because a lot of that development is done at that point. So love to hear from anybody that's dealt with this with uh, optics and firearms as a whole. Uh, Most people shoot better with a scope or an optic. Are you somebody that shoots worse? And if so, what have you learned from the experience? With that, we have wrapped up another episode of the show. just want to remind you, if you want to help support our show, one of the ways you can do that is your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z dot com. You go there, you can see all the things that I've reviewed on Amazon, and as long as you start your shopping there, you help us no matter what you buy. Today's item of the day is Fiskers 7-inch take-apart shears for your kitchen. Uh, They're certainly good for other things that scissors or shears are good for, but these are kitchen shears. Uh, They are really powerful, really sharp. They hold an edge well. They're easy to sharpen, and the big thing is they come apart when you want them to, and they stay together when you don't. Most take-apart kitchen shears, my experience, and if you read reviews on Amazon of them, People say, while I'm using them, they come apart. I don't know what makes this so complicated to design, but what happens is they design the take apart. You know, you open them up a certain amount, and they come apart. That's how they work. Well, they design it where they don't have to be open enough to be really over-opened, and they come apart on you. These don't do that. Um, they have a great warranty. And to me, for kitchen cheers, if they do not come apart, I will not use them. They have to come apart. Why? Because today I might be cutting a chicken backbone out, and tomorrow I might be cutting up vegetables that I would use raw. I don't want chicken skank on my vegetables, and neither do you, so get a good quality take-apart shears. Uh, I used to recommend a company called Red Yetiware. Uh, they discontinued the product. They said they brought it back, and they brought back garbage. It wasn't the original ones. This is the best thing on the market now. At 13 bucks a pair, I would say that if you don't have good kitchen shears, you can't afford not to have a pair of these. And if you have one of those block knife sets, and they came with a set of shears, you should probably just get rid of them. Maybe keep them in the block so they take up a space. Get a pair of these. They'll, they, once you use them, you'll be like, everything else is garbage, really. Um, it's seldom the case that the best you can get is some of the most affordable With kitchen shears and a few other things I recommend, that is indeed the case. It's just about finding the right ones. Uh, Fiskars does do some manufacturing in China. I do believe these are actually made in China. uh, But they are actually a Finnish company, and they make great quality stuff. And even when you manufacture in China, you can make good stuff if you have the right quality control and oversight. Fiskars does. They always have. And, again, you can find my product of the day at tspaz.com. As long as you start your shopping there, you help us no matter what you buy. That brings us to our song of the day. We're going to Woodstock Week. This song is by a guy named Richie Havens. And it's kind of like a little mix of like almost like a Bob Marley thing and a Jimi Hendrix thing. And he was actually pretty good friends with Hendrix. Um, but it's called Freedom. And I don't think it's the best song in the world at all. I think it's okay. Um, there's not a lot of words to it. <laughs> it is a pretty amazing musical performance. But the reason we're leading off with it, it was the first song played at Woodstock. It was the opening act. Here's the story of it. One, um, he kind of had an idea for it. It comes from an older song, and uh, but he hadn't written it yet when Woodstock came, and he had to sing it without having written it. That might be why it's so simple, but in its simplicity, it is pretty brilliant. So he said, actually, when you hear me playing the really long intro, that was me figuring out the last bits of what I was going to do because I really wasn't sure even when I stepped up in front of This massive crowd at Woodstock. Additionally, there were a lot of acts that hadn't shown up yet because a lot of things went wrong with pulling off the production of Woodstock. And this guy played for hours because he was the only one there. He wasn't supposed to be first. So he played for hours and did a bunch of encores and things like that as well. Uh, Again, it's probably my least favorite song of all the songs we'll cover from Woodstock this week. But it was the first. And it's something that made this guy really famous. Like, nobody knew who this guy was before Woodstock, and he became a respectable act and made quite a bit of money and, and cut a lot of albums after. Again, Richie Havens, freedom. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life and times you get tougher, even if they don't.